0: We must continue to free civil society from all the rules and regulations and bad incentives that get in the way of all of us helping one another during time of crisis. I think the most moving aspect of the responses that we've seen during this pandemic has been the way that people and companies went out of their ways to help one another. We've seen companies change their business model to supply food to low-income families, to provide hand sanitizers to their community and face masks and other needed goods. But regulations got in their way. And while some were removed, thankfully, many remain in the way. And we must get rid of them so that next time around, businesses, but also churches and individuals can adapt to the next crisis, whatever that crisis
1: is. Thank you for joining the Mercatus Center for this webinar on Moving Forward, Reviewing the Best and Worst Ideas to Address Future Economic Challenges Post-Pandemic. My name is Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Policymakers across the country, in trying to mitigate the spread of COVID-19, put into place an array of protective measures that curtailed economic activity. The question is now, where do we go from here? As we enter the various phases of recovery, there are many policy proposals on how to promote economic growth and also help workers and businesses. We are pleased to have two thought-provoking economists join us today to help us better understand the big-picture economic implications of the different policies, specifically addressing what they see as some of the best ideas for policymakers to implement and some of the worst ideas that policymakers should avoid. Now, our first speaker is Michael Strain, Director of Economic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He oversees AEI's portfolio on financial markets, trade tax and budget welfare economics and healthcare policy he has also released a book earlier this year called the american dream is not dead but populism could kill it our second speaker today is veronique derougi a senior research fellow at the mercatus center at george mason university and a nationally syndicated columnist her research portfolio includes the us economy sustainable economic growth the federal budget and the impact of tax and fiscal policies. Now, I'd like to thank both of you for participating in our webinar today. Michael, I'm gonna throw the opening question to you to frame the discussion. Now, you've studied the impact that the pandemic has had on the economy and government's reaction. What does the challenge ahead look like in terms of economic growth, unemployment? If you give us that big picture.
2: The challenge that we're facing is actually a very different challenge than the challenge that we, that we uh, have just put in the rearview mirror. The economy seems to have bottomed out in the month of April, uh, a little earlier than people had expected. If you look at measures of consumer spending, uh, those seem to have been increasing uh, since uh, mid to late April. If you look at measures of mobility, those seem to have been increasing as well. My expectation was that it would take the labor market a few months to catch up, that you would would first see people spending money again, and then a month or two later, you would start to see uh, the labor market hit bottom. It looks like the labor market actually hit bottom in the month of April as well. Last week, we learned about the state of the labor market in the month of May, and we learned that in the month of May, the economy added two and a half million jobs, and the unemployment rate fell by over one percentage point, which is a extremely rapid drop in just one month. This is surprising, um, but uh, perhaps not completely unexpected given the extent to which businesses have relied on temporary layoffs as opposed to permanent layoffs. Those workers are, are able to come back to work a little faster. And given the policy support that Congress has, has given uh, uh, to businesses and to workers. So the challenge in March was building a bridge that would allow the economy to stay afloat during the shutdown, replacing household income that would be lost, replacing business revenue that would be lost, keeping the kind of basic structure and wheels of the economy greased. Uh, we have now put the shutdown behind us, and we are in the reopening phase. So the challenge with reopening is actually more difficult. Congress is going to need to figure out how to support households, support workers, and support small business while also not stopping workers and households and businesses from changing and adapting to new economic realities. In March, we want to freeze the economy, keep workers attached to their employers, uh, uh, and basically unfreeze the economy after the shutdown ended. We don't want to freeze anymore. We want to allow some industries to shrink and other industries to expand. We want to allow businesses to lay off workers, if that's in their best interest, and then we want the workers to find new jobs. So the policy challenge is both to support the economy and to allow it to change in the ways that are necessary for medium-term prosperity, that's a much harder challenge, uh, and we'll see how Congress does with it.
1: Okay, against that backdrop, I've got to ask you—that's uh, the title of our uh, webinar today. What do you think the three best policy ideas that have been put forward to address these challenges?
2: Narrow it down to three, and the um, the economy is changing so rapidly that the the three that that I you know may have come up with. Uh, Three weeks ago are different, perhaps, than the three that I have now. You know, I think I think that it's important to support small business. It's probably helpful to step back and ask what the goal of policy should be. The goal should not be to alleviate economic pain, right? The idea should not be that you know an airline or or uh, you know a pizza shop or you know whoever uh, is suffering losses and that's and that's a bad hard, breaking thing uh, and therefore we should we should step in with with public policy to fix it of course it is a bad and heartbreaking thing but that's shouldn't be the primary goal of policy the goal of policy should be to preserve the productive capacity of the economy and, and uh, that will allow for the economy to, to fully heal uh, as fast as possible and it will accrue to the to the to the betterment of all workers Uh, uh, As opposed to the workers that are specifically targeted by policy. So if the goal is to preserve the economy's productive capacity, what needs to be done? Well, what needs to be done is different for different types of different types of people. We need to continue and different types of organizations. So we need to continue supporting small businesses. We need to support them in a way that doesn't stop them from shrinking their workforces if they need to or expanding their workforces if they need to that doesn't stop industries from shrinking and other industries from expanding. That means focusing less on payroll than the Paycheck Protection Program did and just focusing more on revenue support. Uh, That could be that could be one item. A second item that's going to be critically important is supporting business investment. Uh, There there are. There are lots of things businesses are going to need to do to adapt to this new reality. You know, a business may want to tear out all of its, you know, a restaurant may want to tear out all of its booths and replace those booths with freestanding tables uh, as a way to attract more customers, just for example. This, this uh, highlights the need for broad-based investment support in the business tax code. So now would be a good time to have more favorable treatment of business investment, not for certain industries or for certain firms, just across the board, more favorable treatment for business investment. Uh, a third thing would be to support entrepreneurship. Uh, we are going to lose hundreds of thousands of businesses as an economy. Uh, right now, bankruptcy rates are not actually elevated. If you look as as recently as as data that runs through the the end of May, you don't, Big, a big increase in total commercial bankruptcy filings, but uh, don't let that give you false comfort. We're, we're going to see hundreds of thousands of businesses close up as a consequence of this, even if Congress continues supporting business. So we need to have businesses in order to lower the unemployment rate. That's, that's how you lower the unemployment rate is that people get jobs. Uh, so things that can be done to support business, uh, to support entrepreneurship, uh, better regulatory climate, uh, things of this nature. Uh, I think will be critically important because we know that it's new businesses that create a disproportionate share of jobs. So if you want unemployed workers to flow into into uh, 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 employment, you're going to need to replace those businesses that that are going to that are going to go bankrupt.
1: You I'm going to her- stop you there because I want to turn it over to Vera. Now, Vera also has been reviewing all the different proposals that are out there and um, that have been impacting the economy. And uh, Vera, what are your three best ideas that you've seen for economic recovery?
0: So there are a lot of good ideas, and I actually like a lot of how uh, Michael framed this, and I want to focus on what we should be doing going uh, forward. And so I picked, you know, three, and the reason why I picked the three that I picked is because, in my opinion, they are best targeted to address the problem at hand, while they also allow for flex- the flexibility that we need to recover. It allows innovation, and these policies also capitalize on the wave of deregulation that we've seen implemented in the last few months without bankrupting future generation. I feel it's my my role to remind uh, that we have some sort of obligation to future generations. And so my first idea is one that was proposed by Arnold Kling. It was originally put forward as an alternative to the payroll protection program that Michael mentioned. That said, I think it is an idea that must be considered going forward. And the idea is very simple. We should extend a line of credit to every checking account in the country, individual and business alike. The individual part matters, because even though we talk about how this would really help businesses, 81% of small businesses in America are sole proprietors. Hmm. They're one-man show. They do not exist really as a business in the eyes of the federal government, and they have a harder time getting loans through bigger programs like the PPP, but also individuals they need to stay on top of their rents and they ca- their car payments and all of that stuff. And when they do, that helps business too. But before I move on to my second policy, I wanna actually say that these loans must be repayable. I mean, they're backed by the government, they're very low rate, uh, but they need to be repayable because that creates all the correct incentives needed to inject liquidity into the market to the firms and people who actually need it without leading to abuses. So the second idea is kind of more out there and is less targeted at the next few months, is this idea that we must continue to free civil society from all the rules and regulations and bad incentives uh, that get in the way of all of us helping one another during time of crisis. I mean, I think the most moving aspect of the responses that we've seen during this pandemic has been the way that people and companies went out of their ways to help one another uh, for instance, we've seen companies change their business model to supply food to low-income families, uh, uh, to provide hand sanitizers to their community and, and face masks and other needed goods. Uh, the, but the regulations got in their way. And while some were removed, thankfully, many remain in the way. And we must get rid of them so that next time around businesses, but also churches and and individuals can adapt to the next crisis, whatever that crisis is actually, because we don't know that the next big crisis is going to be a pandemic. The final idea is one that is somewhat related and it comes from my colleagues, Matt Mitchell, Adam Theer, and Patrick McLaughlin at Mercatus. And they propose creating a base realignment and closure-like commission that would identify and study all the rules um, that have been revised or suspended during the crisis and then make recommendation for each rules to be terminated or reformed. And hence, it would basically uh, craft a plan and and timetable for automatically sunsetting or or really getting rid of of the policies that we don't need. I think this idea can also be applied to future regulation that we still need to actually put on the chopping block or at least certainly put up for review.
1: Great. And I think um, one of Patrick McLaughlin and Adam and uh, the folks who put the Fresh Start Initiative, uh, their proposal is this should be done at the state and local level as well. I want to put that out there because a lot of folks that have uh, tuned no, in to yeah. the webinar today are on the state and local well, level. So
0: so a lot of the policies that were actually put in place, if you put them all together, the vast majority have been actually moved at the state and local level. And uh, in my opinion, they actually show if, if, if a rule is not needed in time of emergencies. I mean, it tells you a lot about the rule. Um, but you know, this type of commissions can be implemented at every level of government.
1: All right. Wonderful. Now, Michael, I'm going to turn it over to the second part of our, uh, our headline in the, uh, for the webinar. What have you seen are the three worst proposals that policymakers should completely avoid?
2: <laughs> wow, there are so many. I,
1: I will limit <laughs> you to three. I have to. Yeah. <laughs>
2: the, uh... You know, I guess the first thing that uh, that I would I would encourage policy to avoid doing is appropriating money and then not using it. Uh, we 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 spent two trillion dollars in the CARES Act, which was passed in March. About five hundred billion of that two trillion, about twenty five percent of the CARES Act, was actually appropriated to the Treasury Department to be used as capital in support of Federal Reserve lending programs. That money hasn't been put to work. Congress needs to be uh, demanding that the Treasury Department used that money uh, to support the economy. It is odd, to say the least, that we are debating an additional economic recovery package, uh, even though 25 percent of the funds that were appropriated in March's $2 trillion economic recovery package still uh, have not been been put to use. You know, executing programs well, I think, is is an important um, uh, an important thing for for policy to do, and not doing that is an important thing to avoid. Um, uh, my second will be the uh, unemployment insurance expansion. It was appropriate to expand unemployment insurance benefits, um, and unemployment insurance benefits should should continue to be uh, expanded relative to what they would be in in, in a normal uh, uh, economic environment. Uh, but uh, topping up UI benefits by six hundred dollars is is too generous. Uh, that Why? because it increases the income uh, that people get from being unemployed above the level that they would get from being employed. Uh, that's true for, you know, say two thirds uh, of workers. Um, so it,
1: it's more profitable to stay on unemployment. And so that provides a strong
2: yeah, for about two thirds of workers. Um, uh, that's at least a, a good estimate. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's not, that's not a huge deal. Uh, during the shutdown, I mean, it's bad. You know, it's not it's not a responsible use of taxpayer dollars. But the economic harm is is confined to uh, elevating the deficit during the shutdown. But now that they're uh, reopening. The economic harm from uh, unemployment benefits that are that generous really could be significant. Our goal is to get unemployed workers back to work quickly uh, and providing strong incentives. To remain unemployed uh, will be a way to uh, keep the economy weaker for longer. My uh, third uh, item will be uh, uh, dedicated to my co-panelist Veronique. Uh, I will I will select uh, uh, the airline bailouts as my third my third uh, bad uh, policy choice. You know, uh, again the the goal of uh, of economic recovery legislation. In this environment, should not be the alleviation of economic pain. Economic pain is going to be felt. It's impossible to shut down the economy for two months and not create enormous economic pain. So, the question is who bears that pain? Uh, And in the case of, of a publicly traded company like an airline, if you are to bail out the airline, what you are saying is that taxpayers should bear the economic pain instead of shareholders. And that, I think, is, is misplaced priority. Shareholders invest in markets and take risk. They receive outsized returns for that risk, for assuming that risk, uh, and the risk that they're, that they're assuming is that there will be losses as well. Allowing investors to benefit from one side of, of, of a risky proposition while allowing taxpayers to pick up uh, the downside of a risky proposition. In other words, investors uh, uh, get the gains and taxpayers bear the losses, I think reflects a significant misprioritization on, on the part of Congress. It should, it should be the investors in those companies that bear the losses, not the taxpayers. Why then does it make sense to provide support for small business? Well, small businesses would be wastefully liquidated uh, if there were not uh, uh, grants given to them, essentially, to help them place lost revenue. They don't have shareholders. They can't easily borrow in, in, in capital markets. And the economy would lose their relationships, their networks, uh, and all the capital that they have built up. That would be, that would be uh, a lot of economic waste, and it would hurt the productive capacity of the economy. So it makes sense to extend grants uh, to small businesses, it does not make sense to bail out the airlines.
1: Got it. Okay, if you're unique, I'm going to ask you now, what are your three uh, worst policy proposals that you've seen in the last few months?
0: So, I mean, hands down, I, I agree with Michael. Um, the expansion of unemployment insurance uh, was just really incredibly poorly designed. Um, it's not the expansion of insur- uh, unemployment insurance that bothers me. I think, um, you know, that's the right thing to do if we're going to have the system that we have in place um, to do, and this is traditionally something the federal government has done, but in this case it was designed uh, in a way that was really responsible. It's not just the $600 that Michael talks about, but it's also the fact that it expended eligibility to a lot of people without any string attached whatsoever. Now, There is a case to be made about this if you're trying to actually really keep people at home as opposed to working, but you still have to be careful on the way you design it so that when the economy reopens... Um you know you, you don 't you have people still returning to work, and what ends up happening, if you remember when the CARE Act was vaguely debated and and the unemployment insurance expansion, there were senators who were actually raising the alarm saying that workers were going to quit their job, and people like laughed at them, but actually, yes, it is true for all the workers who weren't eligible before um these workers actually were going to be eligible and could basically quit their jobs under a variety of reasons. And some of them were very legit, you know, childcare, fear of the virus. But since there was no requirement to ever go back if the economy recovered, um, it, it was really problematic the way it was done. And so I think, like, expanding the unemployment insurance, in the form that it was designed originally, would be a tremendous mistake. Uh, so that's just hands down my 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 top uh, my top uh, worst policy. Uh, what are the other two? Will be uh, will be, uh, will be airline bailouts. I mean, I actually you know I company bailouts. I mean, uh, my colleagues and I and Mercatus have taken very firm stands and done a lot of research on on why they are bad. I will venture to say that there is a reason. Uh, and I agree with everything Michael said about it, but I will say there is a reason why airlines actually were the first one out of the gate asking for a bailout, and that is because they have been bailed out before. And it's not as if they don't have a good alternative to the situation that they were in, which is bankruptcy, right? And they have gone through bankruptcy, and you can fly safely in bankruptcy, and you still get out of bankruptcy Especially if this crisis wasn't going to go on forever and ever and ever, like fairly intact with still a lot of your assets. Um, so, but they they the, the problem is that like it creates so many bad uh, bad incentives, and 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 one of them is to not prepare properly for the next crisis. Now, we can argue whether airlines could have prepared properly, but the truth of the matter is that. Like, Many of them, when it was time to actually talk about condition for the bailouts, and some of them seemed, you know, not that agreeable, like uh, giving shares of, of the airlines to treasury or or executive, I mean, a lot of them were kind of like, "Well, we're not really sure we actually need those bailouts." I mean, yeah, exactly. like because you have alternative ways. And and so that was a terrible lesson. I mean, we never seem to learn that lesson. And I just really hope that this is the last time I'm I'm not holding my breath, that there will be airline bailout in this country. Okay, you have a
1: third. What is your third?
0: So my third one, actually, I was going to tease Michael about using um, the SBA as a means to implement the uh, PPP, but I, I want to actually talk about something uh, slightly bigger, and we can we can uh, bicker at each other later. Right. Um, and that is actually the thing that really I thought was done extremely poorly, is that everyone was rushing. And rather than actually having a conversation and trying to think about whether we should Help companies help or uh, help individuals and or do a balance of both or when we were helping individuals whether we should be sending checks or extend paid leave or 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 unemployment benefit. We ended up doing absolutely everything. Everything we threw everything out uh, out there and and without thinking so much about the consequences about the incentive or disincentive that it would create the fact that some of these policies actually counteract against each other for instance the unemployment insurance is very detrimental to companies who are trying To use PPP because one of the conditions for not having to repay your loan is that you retain your employees. But when your employees have a strong incentive and the means to actually drop out of the job, right? It makes it really hard for some companies to keep their employees, and hence, you know, to to get their loan forgiven. So I think we did Congress did a very poor job at actually thinking through. I think sometimes it's worth, you know just stopping a little bit and try to kind of say, what are we gonna do? Instead we did everything. And I understand that they were egg on by a lot of policy people who said, you know, you can't go too big, you can't do enough. But
1: I think that was a big mistake. All right, we've got a lot of questions that have come in and I'm gonna start with this first one here. The $600 unemployment bonus is clearly beneficial on the demand side, but harmful on the supply side. What are the costs and benefits of swapping some of that bonus for a more universal payment, for example, several more rounds of economic impact payments. Michael, I'll throw that to you first. Well,
2: I think um, it's there's a sense in which it's a challenging problem because uh, you know you don't, uh, from a macroeconomic perspective, I don't think you want to just withdraw all of that money uh, at once. Um, that money is going to support spending. Uh, it's important that people be spending money right now. That's how the economy is going to recover. And so, if you just take unemployment benefits and reduce them by two thirds on average, that's going to to hurt the macro economy. So the, the the question is, what do you do with with that money if you're not going to just cut it off abruptly? Uh, and uh, you know, I think the 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 best thing to do with it, you know, really may be to uh, turn the problem on its head and instead of having a, a, a disincentive to get a job, which uh, which uh, the $600 plus up would do, turn it into an incentive to get a job, turn it into a, a reemployment bonus. So still t- targeted on unemployed workers, uh, I mean, it, it is still unemployment insurance, uh, but uh, say uh, that if you get a job, you know, then you can keep, Three hundred of the six hundred dollars. If you don't get a job, you can keep two hundred of the of the of the six hundred dollars. So give workers an incentive to actually get a job and, and get back to work, while also not withdrawing all of that money at once.
1: I think some some in Congress have been proposing that to do exactly what you're saying, Vera. What would you like to say?
0: Well, so I I really have mixed, very mixed feelings about actually this idea of a, a bonus reemployment thing. First, I mean, and I mean, I again, we could you know bicker about. Whether um, the the this you know the Keynesian idea of like the spending is good for the economy? Well, I mean, good for the economy done this way. Um, It's if it's government you know if it's government spending, it comes from somewhere. So I'm not sure how big the multiplier actually really going is going to be. Uh, But the bonus thing actually I find problematic in several ways. First, because I've said it for many other different policies that two wrongs don't make a right. Now, we have a problem right now, but the economy, I mean, this is supposed to expire in July, that bonus, that extra $600 bonus. Well, let's let this expire and let's, let's start from scratch and actually do an expansion of UI that is actually more in check we're not creating all these big disincentive to work, the other thing is like i you know I hate to be saying this, but i'm just really worried about the i don 't know if it's cultural or what what to call it, but the what we're what we're teaching people if we're saying that you know we the government can actually pay you to work to 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 not work but also it'll you know, pay you to go back to work uh, I think it is you know it it's a problem maybe this one time one time around it won't be but I, so I, I have really mixed feelings uh, and I my preferred position would be just let everything expire and then just just redo a good type it's an expansion that is not, doesn't suffer from all these problems.
1: Here's some news. Someone just type, uh, sent in the chat box. Idaho is going forward with a reemployment bonus, a one-time cash bonus of $1,500 for full-time work and a $750 uh, uh, bonus for part-time work. So at least Idaho. A great people. state. Yeah. It's a great state. Great people. Well, I mean,
0: this is the greatness of, uh, of our system, right? It's like we can see, um, how Idaho is doing, and, uh, and then maybe Idaho will prove to actually have done exactly the right thing.
1: Yeah. Okay, we're going to go on to the next question. It says, how can states best prepare for the looming surge of foreclosures and auto repossessions, especially considering the end of the additional UI benefits in July and temporary restrictions being lifted? So how do you prepare for the uh, surge of foreclosures and auto repossessions? So I, I
0: haven't thought about this particular question in, in details, but I mean, I would I'd like to plug in again, this idea of a line of credit. The, I, the reason why I think this idea is actually a, a, a good one, and I don't know that it, again, all these ideas that Michael and I are talking about, all the good ones, um, none of them, right, are enough if the economy stays closed for a long period of time. There's just no silver bullet to this. But in an economy that is reopening, right, where some people are going back to work and where we're going to we're going to see uh, some growth and people making money, this idea of a line of credit, I think, has has some really kind of um, some some appeal. You uh, you put you give uh, a line of credit to every checking account, and, and 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 because it is repayable, in spite of having a very low rate and being guaranteed by the federal government you all those people who actually need them there's basically you don't need in its design to say to tell people this can only be used for this or that right and you can people can actually use it for whatever it is they actually need and when they need it they don't need to re- to rush out the door immediately to apply when they don't need it and yet they have this safety net in case in the future, they need it either because they don't go back to work as fast as they thought, or when they go back to work, it's only on a part-time basis, or, you know, they go back to work, but they, they have to hire someone to watch their children because they're not back at school. Um, and, I, and I think that, that this is actually an idea we should, we sh- we should consider. It's no, it's no silver bullet, but it allows a flexibility to be applied to all sorts of, of, of situation that I can't even think about now that is really specific to each businesses and a, each individuals. And by helping people, we help companies, as I mentioned before.
1: Okay, we've got a lot more questions, but one uh, I also received in the chat box, Alex Adams, uh, whom we've worked with on reg reform at Rekadis, is actually leading that effort in Idaho. And the uh, Great question- man. We, we like Alex. Um, and the uh, question was, what about the people who aren't getting that $600 bonus? What about them? Are they left out in all of this? The workers who stayed on the job and feel like they're not getting the same benefits as the po- folks on unemployment. Well, I mean, yeah,
2: I mean that's one, that's one reason to, to, to withdraw the, the, the bonus. Um, I mean, there are, there are equity considerations. You know, uh, $600 a week, that's a lot of money. Uh, that's thirty thousand dollars a year. Uh, uh, you know, it, and that's on top of the three hundred dollar average UI payment. So you're talking about nine hundred, nine hundred fifty dollars a week on average mm-hmm. uh, uh, over the course of a year. That's that you're getting close to to median income there. And so uh, there is, I think, an equity consideration here. Uh, it's not my primary concern. I mean, again, we have an unemployment insurance system. People who uh, lose their jobs through no fault of their own and are actively trying to find a new job are typically not better off than people who are employed. They're currently not better off than people who are employed in any sort of meaningful long run sense. Uh, uh, and you know they do pay into the unemployment insurance system. Uh, uh, you know, it's social insurance, in other words. It's not. It's not. It's not a, a you know cash welfare as traditionally. Understood, but when you start when you start giving people nine hundred thousand dollars a week, uh, you know then you know it's not reasonable that 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 some workers are, are going to feel like that's that's not fair, and and that's why uh, we should only do those sorts of things in extraordinary situations. And uh, at this point, the extraordinary situation really is in the rearview mirror. All fifty states are at least partially reopened.
0: The other thing that I would like to since there are a lot of uh, state state policy people, it's like, I mean, it is worth also considering about the effect of this expansion will have on the uh, uh, UI uh, trust fund in the states. I mean, because as more people are incentivized to actually use unemployment benefits rather than work, I mean, the states are actually, it's not just the federal government that is actually put put into to pay all this, but um, you know the, the states are also put in a position where those who weren't eligible before uh, are going to be eligible, not just before the $600, but also for the state benefits. And that is going to be, I think, something that states are going to have a hard time dealing with.
1: All right, let's move on. Let's get short answers if we can, because we've got a lot of questions. How should municipalities cope with reduced sales taxes and state aid payments? Raid the piggy bank, i.e., the fund balance? The funding levels at state and localities are. are...
2: Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and infuriate uh, Veronique and say that I think that the federal government should give some financial assistance to state and, and municipal. Uh, governments you right can't now.
0: infuriate me, Michael. It's you. <laughs> you
2: know, I tolerate every you know
0: everything from
2: you. All of my, all of my apostasy. They're not. Um, these states are not allowed to run balanced budgets. Uh, they're going to suffer a significant reduction in tax revenue. They're going to have uh, significant expenses as a consequence of the coronavirus, not just public health expenses. Local school districts are going to have to spend a lot of money getting their schools ready for the fall. Uh, and so the choice that these states face is not to spend money on essential services or to lay off a whole bunch of workers or to do both. And in fact, we've already seen considerable layoffs. Uh, you know, In the month of May, we had broad-based employment gains except for uh, state and local government. Uh, the concern that that conservatives typically have, of course, is that that several of these states have really badly mismanaged their pension systems. and, And it's not reasonable to expect citizens of other states to contribute tax revenue to bail out those pension systems. I think this just speaks to the need for Congress to Target the relief to, to state and local governments so that it isn't used on on pension systems and and uh, that it is used on on um, uh, pandemic recession uh, related economic recovery. Um, but I actually view this as a pretty critical component of what Congress needs to do to support the economy right now. Uh, and uh, my expectation is that uh, sometime in the next month or so we will see uh, some action on this.
1: Vero, do you have comments on that? Yes, um, I.
0: Yeah, so I usually do not support, I mean, uh, bailout of of state and local governments. And I am sure that we're going to see some action on this. And I mean, and one of the big reasons, apart from the ones Michael has enumerated, has, uh, has is the fact that, you know, these states are in, are in trouble for, for a good reason. It's because they've been really quite irresponsible. And a lot of them actually don't plan appropriately for this type of emergency. And each time around, when they get bailed out, they have even less incentive to, um, to, to plan for the next time around. Uh, and so I think Michael makes a lot of very good uh, points about why we should do it in this particular case um, I agree that said <laughs> that said I mean I don't necessarily see the disemployment of, uh, of public uh, of local and state employees as necessarily a terrible things thing but um, but I, I will say just let's always remember it's just like if you give these Bell and and over and over again you will never these states and local governments will never learn that they need to plan. And they need, they need, they, and, and yet they need to plan. I mean, like looking at their rainy day fund is actually tells a very good story. Uh, that's not actually, uh, you know, a blue state, red state story necessarily about, about the, the lessons learned from, from the Great Recession, which is just very little.
1: Um, we've got a couple of questions I'd love to get in. Uh, one is that Black Americans are disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Uh, it's affecting those communities' health, economic disparities. As black unemployment has risen, not gone down, in like in other communities, uh, though it's illegal to outright prefer one race over another. What are some ways states can help black populations like Georgia, that is 30 percent African American, get back to work safely and stop unemployment from rising? That's I think that's a hard question. Well, but Michael. So Michael actually wrote a whole book about this. Oh, hold that up cuz somebody uh, actually typed in wanting to know. Uh, Michael Strain is from AEI, that's his book right there and Veronique is from Mercatus. That was one of the earlier questions that I didn't address.
2: The short the short answer is 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 to uh, really focus on economic opportunity, to focus on measures that can support and reward work, things like earning subsidies for example, if you're if you're a low-income household, and you earn a certain amount of money, then the state government can can top that up through a through a tax credit. Um, about half, half the states have a have a program like that. For example, uh, there are longer term there are longer term measures that need to be taken as well. Uh, state governments have a huge role to play in making sure that workers have the skills and education they need to command high wages in the labor market. You know, some of some of some of that takes. A decade to bear fruit, but those are investments that, that need to be made today and, and should have been made uh, in the past. So just helping helping workers, particularly lower income workers, to have what they need to to succeed uh, is critically important. States have a huge role in that.
0: Arcadis has actually done a lot of work on, on ending occupational licensing laws, which are prevalent in a lot of states. I mean, these have proven to actually be a big impediment to you know that first step up that income ladder, uh, and it it really hurts uh, black and minorities uh, in those states. Um, it's uh, there are a lot of actually regulations and all sorts of like zoning and land use. We actually we actually prevent people from leaving uh, areas of high unemployment. Obviously, we're talking post and pre pandemic leaving higher high unemployment areas and moving to places that have higher wages because the wage gains is, is not by, uh, by the cost of living. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things uh, that can be done. Um, and, and I mean, as I said, my colleagues have done a ton of work on this, uh, Matt Mitchell in particular. Um, and I really recommend that
1: you look at his work. Question here: Where does a payroll tax holiday rank on the good idea, bad idea spectrum? Thank you, Mark Goldwine.
2: Hi, Mark. Um, I think it's. I think it's. I think it ranks pretty high up on the bad idea spectrum. It yeah, is, it
0: I, is I agree. So I actually awesome. I, I really agree with Michael. And one of the reasons is like we can't continue to say that we want to have you know all these big spending programs, like, and we want to have social security that are arguably paid for and and, and by, by the payroll tax and and continue uh, providing the payment while at the same time always using the payroll tax for uh, uh, you know as 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 a way to kind of like reduce taxes when we want to we can't have it both ways and and I think the payroll tax is quite terrible in a lot of ways it's, it's very um, is very uh, regressive but I, I think that it kind of we
2: can't have it both ways. And the, we have 13% unemployment. The payroll tax, uh, a yes. payroll tax or a payroll tax holiday would boost my income considerably and it would do nothing for the 13% well, of who don't have a job right now.
1: All right, uh, um, we're going to close with this one question, uh, but if anybody has a, a, would like to follow up with either a Veronique or a Michael, um, just shoot us an email, and we'll put you in touch with them if we did not get to answer your question. Um, there are some very good ones here, um, but uh, I'm trying to get enough of a, a broad swath of questions in. Okay, a question came in. What are the problems with expanding the paid leave mandate? Should they be extended an additional year or permanently? Vero? no okay that's no, very- it's certainly not permanently I well, think uh I mean it's just like
0: uh, there's I have said at the beginning of, of this well i'm I'm like a really a very 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 strong opponent I can't add I, too many varies to to this of of uh, a federal provision of paid leave um because of Actually, it would hurt the people. We pretend we wanna, we wanna, we wanna help. Um, I have said that there is a role during the recession and in this case, in particular, not all recession, to actually extending targeted uh, to to put in place targeted uh, payroll tax as long as it was extremely temporary. And I think that doing during a broad extension, uh, you know, just and especially a long term one would be would be a disaster.
1: Michael, you get the final word on that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think you know, the, um, the, a, a permanent uh, federal paid family leave program would uh, really make it harder for a lot of lower income younger women to get jobs. And uh, we should be doing things, particularly at a time like this, we should be doing things to help lower income Americans uh, get into, into employment, uh, not, not erecting obstacles in their path.
0: And the thing that people need to understand is like, it sounds good, right? The people who are in jobs right now where they don't have paid leave, if they have it, in theory, at least at the beginning, they they keep their wages, plus they have this benefit. But the truth of the matter is that going forward, what's going to happen is that employers are willing to pay total benefits. And what ends up happening is because they now have to pay for that benefit, they shrink the amount of wages that employees get. So the ones who are hurt the most by this, right, is going to be those with already the lower wages in the first place. And people say, well, it's unfair that employers are doing this. But that's actually, you know, that's just a way companies can survive, is not to, to
1: throw a ton of money that they don't have at employees we are at the end of our time. We don't want anybody to get Zoom fatigue. Zoom fatigue. I can't even say <laughs> it. Anymore. Uh, but I want to thank everyone for joining us. Thank you, Michael Strain from AEI for joining us. Thank you, very Nick Deruji of Mercatus. If anybody would like to follow up, again, please send us an email. We'll put you in contact with them and get your questions answered. And thank you all for joining us.